Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to have a Bible study today on Judges 17 and 18, and then later on Isaiah 40. Let's just start with, uh, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, that we might really understand what you want us to understand from your word this day. We pray that you'll open our eyes to these ancient accounts that we're reading in Judges, and that we might perceive something for ourselves, that we might really hear your voice in each of these uh, chapters which we read, and as we reflect, we ask that you will really speak to us as you lead us further towards the eternal life of your kingdom. We ask this, Father, for the sake of all that your dear Son, Jesus, achieved and intends for us. Amen. Okay, you're really going to need to have Judges 17 and 18 open in front of you. Um, this is the, the account of this guy Micah and his rather strange behaviour. Now, I want to start off by saying that Judges 17 to 21, it seems to me to be a bit out of chronology with the, the rest of Judges. It seems to actually be talking about incidents that happened very early on in the, the time of, of the Judges. Why I say that is because um, in, uh, in Judges 18, verse 30, well, we have the reference there to Jonathan, son of Gershon, son of Manasseh, or as some uh, text read it, the son of Moses. So this was really only a, couple of, a few generations after Moses, three generations maybe, and then in chapter 20, verse 28, you read about Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. Well, this would mean really that what we're reading here in this part of Judges is just a couple of generations after Moses. So it's soon after they enter the land. And the theme of Judges 17 to 21 is about the tribe of Dan. It's insights into Dan's apostasy. And I, <coughs> I suggest that that's a, a theme that's sort of tacked on to, to the end of Judges to explain why the tribe of Dan have really lost the plot and of course, in Revelation 7, in the New Testament, we don't read Dan as listed amongst the tribes. So then, this little insight into the, the apostasy of Dan is uh, starting off with the story of, of Micah. And verse 2, this guy Micah says to his mother, The 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, about which you, you cursed and spake of in my ears, behold, I took the silver. And his mother said, Blessed be you of Yahweh, my son. She cursed. Now, ancient people put a lot of meaning on a curse, that if you stated that somebody was going to be cursed if they did something, you took that very, very seriously. So, this Micah had a fear of judgment. He had a conscience. When his mum says, Whoever took that 1,100 pieces of silver, so and so, such and such is going to happen to them, he repents. So this guy is not without a conscience. Now, 1,100 pieces of silver was a lot of money, because down in verse 10, um, Micah agrees to pay this priest 10 shekels of silver a year. So you earn 10 shekels a year. That's roughly, say, one shekel uh, a month. And that, the implication is, I think, was a very good salary. And so 1,100 shekels was a really a lot of money. And so this is the theme that we start to encounter here, a mixture of spirituality and absolute fleshly human 
kind of, uh, kind of thinking. And of course there, these ancient records become so relevant to us in the 21st century, because this is what we're up against in ourselves, deep inside ourselves, a mixture of flesh and spirit. Now when he says, the silver is with me, I took it. <clears throat> it's a very frank kind of confession. And it's recorded in such a way to recall the confession of Achan in Joshua 7, verse 21, where he openly admits that he stole, same word, 200 shekels of silver. And you may say, yeah, but it's 1,100 here. But in verse 4, they, his mother takes 200 of those shekels and makes a graven image with them. So there was something to do with a sum of 200 shekels. Now, Achan was condemned and destroyed for what he did. And yet the record of Achan's confession kind of leads us, I think, to hope that he's going to repent and say, I'm very sorry, and be forgiven. But then our expectation is dashed and he's destroyed. And I think that's because in Achan you see the difference between confessing sin, sort of fessing up and admitting, yes, I did this, and repentance. And it's the same, I think, with this guy Micah. He uses the same sort of language and says, yes, I did this. I took it, the 200 shekels of silver. And yet whether he really repents, it would seem not. So there is a difference, and this is very useful in our very personal self-examination. There's a difference uh, between our recognizing that, yes, we're all sinners, that's one thing, uh, and yes, I do many things I shouldn't do, that's one thing. But that is not actually the same as repentance. And that is, I think, the lesson you take from Micah using these words of Achan, who was in exactly the same situation. What does his mother say? She says, blessed be you of Yahweh. She uses the covenant name. And she thinks that she's, she can pronounce blessings from Yahweh, just as she's pronounced a curse. So she's kind of playing God. You know, who is she to start pronouncing blessings and cursings um, upon a thief? She, as it were, finds the thief and blesses him. This, again, is, is not right. Then she says in verse 3, she says, I had wholly dedicated that silver unto Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, she says, I wholly dedicated this to make a graven image. Wait a minute, there's 1,100 shekels of silver here, and she uses 200 in verse 4 to make this graven image. But she says, I wholly dedicated the 1,100, but she uses only 200. And she says, I do it unto, unto Yahweh. When it's quite clear that she's really worshipping another god. This is not Yahweh worship. So again you see this mixture of flesh and spirit. This woman is not an atheist. This woman is not ignorant of covenant relationship with, with Yahweh. And it's very similar really to Ananias and Sapphira who were condemned for doing the same thing saying that they had given a certain amount, that they had given uh, uh, their the whole dedication of their money, when actually they had only given part of it. All throughout the Old Testament, worshipping Yahweh is presented as being the very opposite of worshipping idols. And yet that's not how Israel saw it. They, in practice, thought that they could worship Yahweh through worshipping idols. And there is a subtle difference there. And all the prophets and 
what we're supposed to learn from this record is that no, you do not wholly dedicate yourself to Yahweh by making idols, as this woman says. It kind of seems obvious as we read it in the text, but this was not so obvious to them. They considered that you could worship Yahweh through worshipping the idols. The high places that they made to Yahweh became the high places upon which they worshipped their pagan gods. And this, is it not, is, is the temptation. To justify our totally human life, our worldly life, our fleshly life, as if this is serving God. It's rather like, you know, the person who has this, this mansion with all manner of cars and uh, opulent wealth that they've given their whole life and career to making all this money and this wealth. They turn around and say, as you walk into their house and they notice that you're kind of, um, <clears throat> well, looking around the place and maybe uh, not quite sure this is the, the life of a Christian. They say, oh, yeah, this is all for people. I've been in such situations several times. This is for my grandkids. This is, well, you know, we invite other people over. Well, uh, sorry, let's get it right. You want to do what everybody else wants in this life, which is financial security, opulence, cool life, live the life of luxury. That's a normal human temptation. Who would say no to that? And yet we can do that in the name of serving God. Now, there's many people who don't get there, who don't get to the mansion and the fleet of Cadillacs or whatever, and yet they spend their whole life and career and all their energy and initiative trying to get there. And maybe they don't get there, but all the same, they justify it as, ah, but I'm doing this for other people. You know, this is the same as worshipping Yahweh through worshipping idols. And it's a very hard lesson. We don't, we squirm and squiggle, and we, we, we weasel our way out of this because we don't want to hear this. And it's, ah, but, but, but. There's actually no if, no but about it. We ought to serve Yahweh, serve God with a whole heart, soul, and mind. And that's the bottom line. And we read this record here of Micah and his mama, and we think, my goodness, you two are just so mixed up. Really and truly. And then she says, um, <clears throat> well, I had wholly dedicated this for my son. Like, you know what, honey, I intended to give you this money anyway. Well, I think not. She said that because she wanted to justify her son for his bad behavior. He stole the money. She said, ah, you know what, I meant to give it to you anyway. And all the same, verse 4, yet he restored the money. She said, it's okay, you keep it. You keep it, I meant to give it to you anyway. You stole it from me, but don't worry, I meant to give it to you anyway, and I meant it for you to make a, an idol with. Yet he restored the money. Well, again, I think you see in this Micah guy a, a conscience there. He has a conscience. He knows he shouldn't have stolen money off his mother. And he insisted that his mother uh, has this money. So the point is that conscience still works in the most spiritually confused and unspiritual people. That's why it's completely simplistic. Uh, to, to claim about certain people, ah, oh, they have no conscience. Maybe in one or two aspects of life they have no conscience. But there's no such thing as a human being that has no conscience. That's a stupid, quite honestly. That is ignorant. Uh, and a claim that certain people, to label people as sociopaths, etc., ah, oh, yeah, she's got no conscience. Yeah, she may not have a conscience in this part of life, that part of life. 
especially as it concerns you. Um, but to, to say that a human being does not have a conscience is like saying that a human being uh, is a, you know, hasn't got a, a heart that functions, hasn't got any blood in them, hasn't got any brain between their two ears, uh, etc. Of course they do. You know, that this is irresponsible labelling and judging of people on a very simplistic level. And we need to be realistic about who we are as persons, because we have a conscience. The problem with us is not that it doesn't function. Our problem is dysfunction. And the problem with dysfunction is that it partially functions and then it doesn't. That's the problem. So, <clears throat> I think he maybe returned the money to his mum because she said, look, I, you keep the money and use it to make a graven image. Well, to make a graven image, verse 4, is exactly what the Mosaic Law so many times said, thou shalt not do. And I think he sort of wiggled and wormed and thought, well, I don't really want to make a graven image. Um, and so, <clears throat> his mother takes the money and she gives it to another bloke, the founder, to make the graven image. Get someone else to do your dirty work for you. Well, they started off with a graven image and a molten image. Verse 4, and then verse 5, and the man, Micah, had a house of gods. So you allow one or two idols, the guy ends up with a whole house full of them, a house of gods. On a simple level, you allow one weakness in your life, you think, yeah, I'll let myself go in this point, in this area of my, my life, etc. It multiplies. This is the problem of not living, or not trying to live, let me put it that way, a wholly dedicated life to the Lord. Now, once we start to say, well, yes, but I shall allow myself this, that, or the other, that, this, that, or the other, multiplies into a house of gods. But there's a bit more to it, because when you look at the Hebrew for house of gods, it, uh, it is the house of Elohim. And Elohim is translated God 99% of the times in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, I think here in verse 5, you could uh, safely say, he made himself a house of God. And incidentally, at the end of chapter 18, verse 31, you have the very same term. All the time that the house of God, the house of Elohim, the house of gods, if you like, was in Shiloh. So there was a house of God, a house of Elohim. And Micah, here, in chapter 17, verse 5, he makes a house of God. He makes not just a, a collection of little pretty-looking uh, uh, idols, he actually creates an alternative tabernacle. And it goes on that he made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Now, I think this guy's got pretensions to Aaron because it's Aaron who consecrated his sons to become priests, same word. It's Aaron who had an ephod and it's Aaron who, of course, was working in the house of God. So I think there's more to it here. He, he sets up a whole alternative tabernacle. And, you know, he didn't have to do this. He spends a lot of time and money uh, doing this. This is, as I say, our problem. It was Israel's problem. Not to become atheists, I don't think, not to reject God wholesale, but to mix the ways of the flesh, what we would naturally like to do, with the worship of God and kid ourselves, this is actually serving God. That's our big problem. Then in verse 6 we come to uh, a phrase that keeps on occurring. There was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 
It's easy to assume that that is a negative comment. It's lamenting that people did what was right in their own eyes. But, of course, to have a king in Israel was not a good thing. When they wanted to have a king in Israel, God said, no, I don't want you to have a king in Israel, because I am your king. So the contrast is between having a king and doing what is right in your own eyes. God did not want them to have a king. We know this. And the phrase is taken, this of doing what's right in your own eyes, from Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, where it's used in a positive way, where Moses says, look, we have no established sanctuary here in the wilderness. You are to do that which is right in your own eyes until we come and we have an established sanctuary. So then I think that what he's saying, what this phrase is saying, and it's several times in the, in the book of Judges, is that, yes, there was no king in Israel, that was a good thing, and people were left to do what was right in their own eyes, which was, uh, which was also good. Uh, there was no king, and therefore you did what was right in your own eyes. The problem is that, without spiritual guidance, unfortunately most people, when they're left, when they're given the power to do what's right in their own eyes, will unfortunately uh, do what's right by their own flesh, rather than by the spirit could be that the book of Judges was rewritten under inspiration whilst Israel were in captivity, or while Judah were in captivity, without a king and without a sanctuary. When really, again, the people of God had no option but to do what was right in their own eyes. And this was no bad thing. So, verse 8. This uh, uh, Levite departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to Sodom, where he could find a place. The idea, of course, was that the Levites were supposed to be supported by tithes and gifts of land from the rest of the Israelites, but they weren't doing that. And so this led people like this young Levite to just become hirelings, just wandering around, taking money for being somebody's religious conscience. And unfortunately, the failure of a community, the failure of individuals, for example, to give the Levites their tithes, that leads those other people into sin. This is the problem with failure to keep God's ways that we then lead ourselves further and further onwards into sin and we lead other people there. And so Micah says to this guy, verse 10, Oh great, be unto me a father and a priest. Now he doesn't actually know whether this fellow, this Levite, is a priest because not all Levites were priests. He thinks, ah, oh, but you're a Levite. Well, that's, that's close enough. That's, that's good. Um, and we just see in this whole thing, and also in chapter 18, man's terrible need for spiritual leadership. Because this was a young man. But he says, please be my father. But this guy's a young man. In verse 11, the young man was unto him as one of his sons. So this Levite was to Micah like one of his sons. But when it came to spiritual stuff, ah, oh, please be my father. This is pathetic. Although he was a young man, it's emphasized twice, 11 and 12. The young man was, one of, was like one of his sons. The young man, verse 12, became his priest. And you've got this again in chapter 18, verse 19, <clears throat> where again they say to the young man, go with us and be to us a father and a priest. This is why the big religions, Catholics uh, and so forth, are as they are. People want spiritual leadership. People just need it. 
And again, this is brought out in chapter 18, uh, where we, we read there that um, when the, the people of Dan uh, came and, uh, and attacked these, uh, these other people, there was sort of an anarchy there because there was no, no leadership there. Um, there was nobody there to, to be a magistrate in the land. There was no one to uh, put them to shame. Chapter 18, verse 7 uh, the place was quiet and secure. There was no magistrate in the land. They might put them to shame in anything. So then, this is a theme. There was no king. People did what was right in their own eyes. But unfortunately, they had no spiritual leadership. And I, I would like to suggest that our community lacks understanding on this point, that we have reacted so far against the idea of, of paid pastors and, uh, and so forth, uh, and have gone so down the, the, the road of democracy, whereby everybody has a go uh, at uh, speaking off the platform, this kind of thing, that I think we have missed uh, a, whole, uh, a whole theme that is right through the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, of spiritual leadership. Uh, and it's, when you don't have that, you end up with this messy situation that they had at uh, this time, when every man does what's right in his own eyes, but without spiritual leadership and guidance, what happens? In reality, it just doesn't work out. And people need this fatherhood, spiritually. It's pathetic, really, how these guys are fighting each other, really, to get hold of this young guy who just said he was a Levite. Um, and verse 13, Micah says, Now I know that Yahweh will do me good. You know, he uses the covenant name, seeing I have a Levite to be my priest. It's pathetic, really, is it not? All the time, there is a, a desire, a constant desire, to have, uh, to, to have some sort of relationship with God. Micah wants this relationship with God. He's a very religious guy, but he's so far from the true God. And I think that is worth bearing in mind. Especially in our preaching, we can have the impression that people are totally not interested. This is not true. Everybody, and this chapter, this chapter is here, a classic example, everybody, it's wired in every human being to want to have some kind of spiritual dimension to life. You know, our lives have got various dimensions, sexual dimension, spiritual dimension, the social dimension, etc. It's ridiculous to say that for one individual, that, that dimension don't exist. It does exist, of course it does. And the difference with spiritual stuff is that people will act like, nah, 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 I don't have that. I'm not interested. Everybody fears death. Everybody senses there is a God. And everybody underneath realizes that we have a conscience and they want to do something with that conscience. So chapter 18, these guys from Dan, um, they come along and... They, send, they come to Eshtaol to spy out the land and to search it, and they send spies to search the land, to have a look round and come back and tell them uh, the situation. Now, that's exactly, that's exactly what happened, of course, with Israel when they approached the land in the first place. So, again, these people are sort of half-following biblical uh, uh, protocol and, uh, and precedent. Half, but doing exactly what they want. And they come to this guy, Micah's priest, and they say, should we go? And he says, go in peace before Yahweh is your way, but then you go. Very vague. 
you know, your way is before Yahweh. God sees what you're doing. Well, yes, uh, that's not actually saying yea or nay, but um, that's again the whole the, the whole theme. Uh, and then they come back, um, verse nine. And they say, Arise, that we may go up against them. These spies say this. We have seen the land. It's very good. And are you still? Don't be lazy to go and enter to possess the land. These are the very words of the faithful spies. And yet these faithless men quote them. So the whole thing is so mixed. And so verse 20, um, they set everything up uh, and they, they kidnap basically this uh, priest, this Levite, and he takes the ephod and the telephone, the graven image, and went in the midst of the people. Now, Yahweh travelled in the midst of his people, Numbers 14, verse 14, as they went through the wilderness to inherit the land. They are trying to imitate the, 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 the journey of God with his people from Egypt to inherit the land of Canaan. And verse 21, they put the little ones and the cattle and the carriage before them. Big problem translating the word carriage because the Hebrew word really means the glory. Now, why is this a strange word? Well, it's understandable once we realize that they were imitating the glory of God over the ark, traveling amongst them. So they, they kind of want to be religious. They want to externally be like the people of God. They know a bit of biblical history, as it were. And they want to follow that. They like Michael. Uh, they really have some conscience to God. And then verse 24, poor old Micah, um, he's heartbroken, this guy. You've taken away my gods which I made and the priest and you've gone away. And what have I more? And why do you say to me, what's the matter? It's like, I don't have anything. Well, he had... Look, he, he got 1,100 shekels of his mother. That was like equivalent of, of like almost millions. Uh, and he only spent 200 on making his, uh, his things, his gods, and he might have spent a little bit more on other things. But the implication is this guy's got money, quite a lot of it. Um, and his mother, well, she sort of did have money. Um, she also seems to be wealthy. And yet he says, look, I've got nothing now. And you say, what's the matter with me? I've lost my gods and I've lost my priest. Like, his religion was everything to him. And sometimes we wonder, when we meet sincere people, for whom clearly their religion is everything, and we wonder, ah, you know, maybe God like, might just accept them anyway. Well, he, I mean, you know, it's not for us to judge. But to merely be religious, to merely be religious, is not good enough. That's the point. The whole message of these chapters from this apparently rather strange context back then, comes right out into our days, that unless we are totally committed to the Lord, this is the mess, the, 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 the kind of complete soup that, that spiritual life descends into. Totally mixed up, no leadership, no conscience, or conscience not functioning properly, I should say, not a case of no conscience, but uh, conscience not functioning properly, and ultimately no real meaningful relationship neither with God nor with your fellow members of God's people. So these ancient words, this ancient story or account, this history, speaks directly to us who have got on every hand temptation to be totally partially committed 